Hello and welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Nia Krofi Smatabe. This podcast is an educational program produced by the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents in the USA or AFPC USA. The AFPC USA is a non-profit organization established in 2019 with offices in New York and Washington, D.C. It currently has members or journalists from over 100 countries, including myself. I am originally from Ghana, but currently live and work in New York. For many people, the mention of foreign correspondents readily brings to mind journalists from Europe or America visiting their part of the world to cover a story. But the reverse is also true. There are many journalists from around the world living and working in the United States and reporting on the U.S. to the media back in their respective countries. And the AFPC USA plays a vital role in helping those of us who are affiliated get the networking, training and opportunity that we need to be able to understand and adequately cover the U.S. for our audiences. As you join us on this podcast, remember that it's not meant only for practicing journalists, aspiring journalists and journalism students, but in fact, just about anyone who is interested in journalism stands to benefit from this podcast. So I thought we'd kick things off by formally introducing the AFPC USA, or is it reintroducing the AFPC USA to you as we begin this podcast in the hopes that should you, probably a present or future foreign journalist, find yourself working in the US and looking for a community, consider reaching out to become a part of our growing community. To give you a better idea of the AFPC USA and what it does, I am joined by the chair of the AFPC USA, Nancy Praja Camel. Apart from being our board chair, Nancy is also a strategic advisor to the United Nations and to the United States government on international issues and human rights with a special dedication and expertise on anti-trafficking. She has served on many of the most impactful humanitarian boards, both in the U.S. and internationally, and is a recipient of the French government's humanitarian award, La Grand Prix Humanitaire de France. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, so we're talking about ourselves. Usually with journalists, we don't blow our own horns, as they say, but this time we are permitted to do it. So we're talking about the AFC USA on our very first episode. Tell, for those who are not so familiar with this um, association, tell us about its origins. With pleasure. Uh, the AFPC represents the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents, and now we are, I believe, the largest in the United States. We're very unique because we represent journalists from 171 plus countries who are mandated or, or requested to write about activities and uh, events going on in the United States for their home countries. We uh, actually serve and represent the depth and the breadth of all foreign journalists in the U.S plus uh, a few who have now gone back to their countries due to the COVID, but they are still writing under the same conditions that I've just described. What we do goes beyond other journalist organizations, which is why I said we have expanded to incorporate a lot of activities that are complementary. We provide for forums, we provide uh, interaction with key participants in world affairs and in uh, leaders in 
multiple sectors as well as activities, but we also provide tools and training. So we offer our journalists the opportunity to listen to experts, to gain techniques, and to have a question answers. We're also very responsive, and so our journalists have a particularly uh, vibrant relationship with us. We do tools and training, again, with world-leading experts, and we have our economic support which offers scholarships and grants. And we also have another element to the AFPC, which we've started last year. It's a press freedom site, which teaches training and accountability, and it offers best of class uh, activities. Therefore, we have a cornucopia of possibilities for the journalists who come to the US want to have a home here, want to integrate with their other compatriots, and want to expand their, their focus. Hmm. So it looks like we have a much wider and broader mission and vision than um, some journalist associations would typically have. So do we, um, and I'm, I'm guessing we can't do this all by ourselves, so we must have some sponsors that help us along the way? Well, let me take the mission and vision first, okay. because that will go into what we call our six pillars. Mm -hmm. And it is why I said that we're unique as far as journalist organizations go, because we have the traditional activities, but we expand way beyond that to serve our community. We have, uh, obviously, educational programs where we have workshops. We do interviews, again, as I said, with a broad range of experts from the health field, we've had Dr. Fauci. Uh, we just very, very uh, selectively but broadly have opportunities to hold workshops that will expand the possibility and open doors for our journalists. We also have interviews uh, where we will have activities and opportunity for the journalists to get involved with key figures, to themselves interact with them. We hold seminars as well from world-leading and international experts. We also do scholarships. And with our scholarships, we particularly focus and only, I guess, significantly address active foreign journalists who are pursuing a master's degree in the United States, an eclectic subject matter, to enhance their skills, their knowledge, their performance in whatever field they are committed to. So you might have a journalist who is in studying or here to report on business in the United States, but they might want to learn more about uh, a complementary area. Mm -hmm. And so they go back for a master's degree mm -hmm. in, a US in a US university, mm -hmm. college, um, that will, as I said, complement, integrate, and expand their potential. So th that's the scholarships for our active foreign journalists. Then we have something called the Professional Excellence Awards. Of which I was one of the awardees. Uh, and that <laughs> is, that's that's class. that is, that is primary. That's blue, that's blue ribbon. Uh, and this is in all fields. And um, it is open to foreign correspondence. It has nothing to do with a commitment or an integration with the university. We go by the excellence of their material and of the work that they have provided for, you know, for the uh, journalistic world. Uh, 
so you actually, that's right, two years ago? Three yeah, years two ago. Two years ago. Good. <laughs> well, you have a very elite group of people working or uh, acknowledged with you. Yeah. And then we offer journalists resources. So we have a media platform, which has been expanding as we speak. We've got dignitaries who integrate with us when we have events so that our journalists get a chance to have in-person opportunity to speak to some of the most significant and relevant world leaders at this time, US-based leaders at this time. Uh, then we do Press Freedom Global Alliance. Now, the Press Freedom Awards we started two years ago, but we've expanded it considerably now because it's not just reports on the danger and the violation, but we're going to have a Press Freedom Forum that unites other entities, such as civic, media, public and private stakeholders as well. And uh, they discuss the safety and the protection of journalists, but we also have to hold accountable, even if it is just a first step, in, in holding countries accountable for the violation. And on a personal level, because this is something that I am particularly committed to, I want to see that we end impunity. It is disgraceful when you look at countries around the world, and I'm not sure I should mention them, quite frankly, <laughs> but a few pop into our mind sure. that are egregious, yeah. egregious. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes the government is complicit, mm -hmm. and that's the problem. So I think Mexico, it's something like a 40% record when they've identified um, criminal activity of even acknowledging it. And uh, other countries, and you know, I don't want to be political, but so I'll leave it at that. If there's an, another opportunity, I shall be political. And I'm sure we're leaving probably since we have the um, Press Freedom Project. So maybe coming soon on one of the episodes, we'll delve deeper into this project with some of our own resource people to, you know, give us more insight into that as well. Well, I think that's a good idea, and I think that it's also an opportunity to look at answers, as I said, which are not only responses, but they actually can address the issue. Mm -hmm. um, on another, in another life, um, I was an investment banker, and I worked with a colleague, a company that actually invented a tool that protects individuals, be they journalists, it's a specific tool, mm -hmm. but it monitors where they are, it gives them uh, access and it gives uh, an integration and identifies dangers for them and will guide them through actions that they should take. So it's an excellent company. It's called Yosek. It comes out of Israel. The man who created it had been working with the government in defense and he created a product like this that has applications both in corporate sense and uh, services, journalism, etc. Okay. But uh, I've seen it in action, and I know that it gives a journalist because in many countries, journalists are on their own. They are they are exposed, and in many cases, they're targeted. It's a dire situation. At any rate, I hope that. Uh, there will be other areas where they could look for protection, but this is part of our Press Freedom Global Alliances as we put together different potential uh, actions 
and protocol. And then we have the Foreign Press Awards. So that is our sixth pillar. Uh, the Foreign Press Awards honor individuals with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, we honor f the, um, we give the award for awareness, support, and respect to the international journalist. And we've had marvelous examples. Just recently, uh, Brad Smith from Microsoft was one of the winners. And, you know, I think he's very aware and cognizant of the dangers now they have new equipment for AI and yeah. and it's going to be a challenge. Yes. Certainly it's going to be a challenge for us. And what the other half of the question which I asked before we both forget yeah. and move on to the other was about who helps us um, achieve all these um, amazing pillars that we have. Excellent question. Uh, we're supported by we do not call them sponsors. We call them partners because we don't want somebody to just donate money. We want somebody to integrate into our work uh, and be a true partner in it. And so there is no quid pro quo. We don't take money and they get a certain amount of publicity. It's never like that. The minute they have contributed to us, it's total hands off. Uh, unless the only condition is they might say, I would like to specifically support scholarships, mm. but they have no decision in who gets the scholarships, where they come from, how much they are. So, but in general, our partners, and we have about 25 international partners. Wow. Uh, that's corporate alone. And then we have partners like Heinrich uh, Foundation, uh, the Knight Foundation. So it, it's a melange of both foundations, corporations, mm. private individuals, uh, and they have, I'm proud to say, from the inception of the organization, every single sponsor that has joined us has never left, which is quite a record. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that, that by staying, they're showing they're making a commitment. Uh, the institutions like UNESCO that we're starting to work with now. It's not just a single initiative that we're working with them on, or Civil Courage Prize is another. We integrate what they do into what we do, and we um, amplify their message as they help support ours. Okay, the, just even thinking back a few seconds, moments ago to the six pillars that you mentioned, I'm sure these pillars came about because the association was thinking about some concerns in the journalism area that it wanted to address. What, what for you would be some of these concerns that uh, the association has? Well, I think that's a good question, and the reason we took down any pre-existing borders to what we do, as the other journalist organizations are defined by certain um, focuses, we want to truly serve not only the clients, but we want to serve the industry. Mm -hmm. And so we've just expanded way beyond an interaction with journalists or support. I mean, we'll give personal support if a journalist has an issue. We have in the past been able to assist them in resolving that. So we're not a top-down. We're very much an integrated organization. Okay. Yeah. Great to know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, tell me if you have a problem. <laughs> I know. I know. 
Um, so um, there are issues like um, disinformation, misinformation making the rounds right now uh, in, our, in our industry. And it's kind of um, pitting the public against the media, if I can put it that way. Um, are these issues of concern to the association that you'd also want to tackle head on? I think they're fundamental issues to society. Mm -hmm. And certainly the organization is a reflection of that. And so we could be, uh, we could have derogatory, we could have derogatory opinions based on information that is incorrectly presented. So I look at it as three different categories. I look at it as misinformation, which means there are errors and missing context, let's say. And that's fairly benign, but it's still significant in the damage it can do. Then there's disinformation, which is intending to deceive. Mm -hmm. And this is an area that I think, sadly, we have entered into. In the last 10 years, there has been a quantum shift in our society and the way we treat one another and regard one another. And then there's, there's something called malinformation, and that's deliberately to release or to hack and to use hate speech. And that is what I think everybody, once it's identified, has committed to restrain. But we're a polarized society, and as was said under former President Trump, there is relative truth. Mm. And, I mean, we've never considered that before. Truth was always monolithic. Yeah. There's a right and a wrong. Mm -hmm. And now there seems to be an interpretation that goes way beyond many people's comfort level mm -hmm. because it opens the door to highly suggestive and highly destructive depersonalization of information or incorrect information being distributed. I, I think there are ways to look at, uh, for instance, if you're using, um, if you're using AI, let's mm -hmm. say. There are ways to look at it and see if it's a real person speaking or one of these artificial bots that are speaking. Mm -hmm. And I was told when we had a session with one of our partners who are very much knowledgeable in this area, Microsoft, they, they told us that there's biological signals that you can see if you're looking at someone who is purportedly the real person mm -hmm. discussing something with you, you look to see if their eye blinks. Okay. Because yeah, it's naturally we all right? blink, yeah. And then you look at broken frames. There are broken frames that you would find in an artificially altered uh, presentation. Mm -hmm. And then there's physical inconsistencies with the lighting or the lip sync or movement the person's movement and this way you can identify that it is not that it's AI yeah, and, it's not not, a, and not a, a human real being human. right yeah. exactly so that, see there are lots of things for us to learn and that's why we, we have this podcast and we'll be delving into a lot more of these issues as we go ahead but I would like to add one other thing though that there are technological solutions uh, the first solution is something called detection technology and in that, you have biological signals, such as eye blinking, as we just discussed. You, have, you look for inconsistency, such as the lip syncing, and that's a key sign. And the broken frames, which we discussed, showing that there is an inconsistency. But there's also a semantic language, a physical inconsistency, that 
indicates that there's an issue. And then there is the authenticity of the origin, where does it come from, mm -hmm. as well as something called padlock. Are you familiar with that phrase? No. <laughs> I wasn't either. It's, it clues in for confirmation of authenticity, and apparently it is available. Mm -hmm. So it is a way that one can challenge what they're seeing and confirm that it's accurate. This is very important because it takes us to an area that is key to my life work as well as my passion, and that's humanitarian issues, but certainly anti-trafficking in this case is a monumental misuse and abuse of, of the internet and every single organization that is especially moving into AI has to be monumentally careful that they are not used as a tool to perpetuate these evils. Mm -hmm. Human rights as well, but uh, you know I remember being at the UN many, many years ago and, and for quite a long period of time, the first real effort in that human rights issues was to, to defend and to protect and to save the boy soldiers because the, they were being you know, mentally brainwashed and then they lost their youth, they lost their education and as citizens back in the country they couldn't function and so it not only disturbed and ruined their life and their family's life but also the life of the country and the future of the country. So the evils are not just in light subjects, they become extraordinarily important and the controls do as well. For instance, in trafficking, you know, a child, I've got young grandchildren and they're very carefully monitored because my family's very well aware of, which I think most people are today, but certainly my family because of the work that I've done at UNICEF and UNESCO and all of the other organizations that Human Rights Watch that I've sat on the board. The interesting thing is that when you have a conversation through an internet connection, you have absolutely no way of authenticating who you're talking to. Absolutely. And there are so many cases, Nee, where this is used in the most vile way, where people will pretend to be children and and organize a meeting for an ice cream or, and the child's never seen again, they disappear. And they haven't quite come up with enough satisfactory answers and training to the parents and the children as to what should be a red flag and how to protect themselves and what to do in the case, which brings us back to this company I was talking about who actually has a I mean, it's hard to strap our children up with electronic devices. We're not going to do it. But we certainly can educate them to be far more aware of who they are speaking to and meeting and, you know, playing games with on an Internet. Okay. And before we wrap up, I just ha I have to ask you this question. Um, for our industry's sake and the fact that you are a chairperson. <laughs> so what are your hopes 
for journalists because we just talked about AI and <laughs> something about padlock that I didn't even know about. And it, it kind of, AI is kind of leaving everybody a bit unsettled and especially with chat GPT, the fact that they could even write somehow like, oh, so what happens to us writers in the newsroom? Does it mean the AI is taking our job? All these questions out there. What are your hopes uh, for the future of journalism? I have very strong optimism because I see the young journalists that we work with and they are committed under adverse situations. I don't think it's ever been so hard to be a journalist today because of the failure of fundamental support systems as well as the world we live in. So I would say my future hope for journalism is a balanced voice so that the independent voice comes out that's uh, accurate and unbiased. Now, that would need to have some system in place where they could identify, as we were just discussing, the malinformation that comes out, but that's a hope that there will be a tool to do that, mm -hmm. or that the young journalists are trained in a far more in-depth manner as to how to deal with this. I can remember when I first became involved with journalist organization, it was many years ago, and the dean of Columbia University said that he was lamenting that for the first time he had to train his students of how to protect themselves when they were reporting in a foreign war because of their being close to the action, the fighting, and could be uh, could be hit by a bullet, etc. Now it's much worse than that. They're the target. Mm. So it's not that they're a byproduct mm -hmm. of violence. They're the target of it in many yeah. cases. So I do hope for, uh, I hope for safety and security. Mm. And I think in safety and security, we really have to deal with ending the impunity yeah. because it is outrageous that people can harm or threaten or kill a journalist. And in many countries, it isn't either reported or it certainly isn't addressed. And then I hope also, and I'm sure you'll like this one, I hope for economic viability. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because I find it so disturbing that with the young journalists who are committing so much, who've educated themselves and therefore had to spend a great deal of money to be able to, to, be able to fulfill their professional needs, and yet they're not being supported because, fully because many of the large organizations no longer keep a vast amount of journalists, so they will buy, they'll buy articles, but that's not a secure, mm -hmm. it's not a secure future for the journalist. So economic viability is one, and by that you also, I would look for increased and diversified outlets. And then information viability, and that's that the public would return to legitimate sources and move away from influences, influencers, in quotes, which I find ludicrous, but you know, they seem to be abundant, and fake news, as Absolutely. we discussed before. And I guess that's basically it. I mean, we are looking for worldwide partnerships with the journalists so that, you know, there's a collaboration and not a competition among journalists. And that all comes with a better structure than is in place right now. So we hope to start a movement or uh, work with other partners who want to move into this direction.
Well, I couldn't have said it any better. Independence, accuracy, safety and security, economic viability, collaboration, all of them. Yes, we are all hoping for that for the future of our profession and of our industry. Nancy Prager Kamel, thank you so much for your time today. Nee, thank you so much for your patience, your time, and your interesting questions. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I hope you've learned some new facts about the AFPC USA that I bet you didn't know before. And as I said in the introduction at the beginning of this podcast, if you're a foreign journalist working in the US, we'll be happy to hear from you and have you join us if you so wish. For more on the educational programs Nancy spoke about in our conversation, do visit our website, www.foreignpresscorrespondence.org. On the homepage, click on the educational program link and you will be able to access our treasure trove of educational programs as well as information about upcoming educational programs. You can also visit our Press Freedom platform by going to www.pressfreedom.org for updates on press freedom violations around the world. We update the page daily with reports about press freedom violations and I highly recommend you check it out. Check our show notes for all these links that I just mentioned. And we are also available on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by our handle at Foreign Press USA. Many thanks for your time. Hope you enjoyed the show and that you will join us again soon on the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Nia Krofi, Smart Abbey. <laughs>